Would you do this? Would you stand here as we read God's Word together? This is from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 24. Back at 1 John chapter 3. We got it up there? Great. It says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before God. For anyone, uh, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Kyle, if you go back to the beginning of that passage um, and just yeah, go back to, the first, yeah, you go to verse 16. The verses will follow along really nicely. Um, you know, we talked about, I mentioned tests, uh, coronavirus tests. Um, there are tests for school. There's tests for uh, your workplace. Maybe you have to pass an exam to, to practice law or to practice medicine. I remember uh, my, uh, in September every year my, of baseball in college, the, f- the fall season started and we had a test. Uh, we would meet at the track, all the players on the team, and we had to run four laps around the track, which consisted of one mile, uh, and we had six minutes to do it. Uh, this was the test. Uh, this test did not uh, prove that, uh, uh, this, this test did not um, you know, prove that we were fast. Uh, it didn't make us in shape. But this test evaluated if you were in shape. It evaluated whether the last three months of the summer you had been sitting on your couch playing video games, eating bonbons, or if you had been running and sweating to pass the test, the six-minute mile. If you didn't pass that evening, you woke up in the morning at 6 and you had 15 more seconds. If you didn't pass that morning, you, that afternoon, the next day until you finally did it. So if you didn't put the work in and you didn't pass the test, it was going to be a miserable week for you of running and sweating it out. It was the test. Tests don't give you knowledge. Uh, they don't make you smart. They reveal, they assess, they help you evaluate where you are. Um, that's what John does here in this text. He really does it throughout the book of First John. We, we've said... Uh, John, uh, John's very straightforward language. It's sim- very simple if you read it in the text. Um, and yet, he's trying to do something really difficult. He's trying to, uh, I've said it this way before, he's trying to comfort or to reassure the worried. He wants those that aren't sure of their faith to be grounded, to be assured. He wants to strengthen their faith. This is so you may know, he says, that you have eternal life. At the same time, he wants to worry the comfortable. He wants to stir up those that might be misguided, those that might be taken off by false teachers. And so together, he's trying to comfort and he's trying to stir up. He's trying to comfort and he's trying to provoke for people to examine themselves to see where they are with the Lord. Some are being tempted to fall away due to false teachers. 
And so John is going to give them tests here, ways of evaluating, ways to look at, not to prove you're a Christian, but for you to evaluate where you are in the faith. Do I pass the test? Can I stand with confidence to say I know the Lord? Let's look at these tests together that John gives us. We'll go pretty much in order down the scripture. The first test is the, it's the love test. It's the love test, verse 16. John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? There's the test. How does God's love abide in him if there's no love, right? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 17, how does God's love abide in him? It assumes that if you're doing these things in verse 16 and 17, then you can have confidence that God's word, that God's spirit abides in you. If they're absent, then we're, asked, we're, we're, we're meant to ask the question, do I know the love of God? Is it abiding within me? And what is it we're required Required to love in the pattern of Jesus, quite a challenge. The last time we were in John, we looked at Cain, and Cain is the, the, the archetype of, of, of evil, of hatred, of jealousy. He's what not to do. And here, Jesus is uh, the exemplar of what it means to love. It says he loves by laying down his life. The example of love. We mentioned various types of love a few weeks ago. There's, there's eros. That's a romantic love. Think of erotic, right? It's a, a romantic love that involves two parties. It's, it's reciprocal love. Uh, he doesn't use that word. Phileo is brotherly love, right? There's a love one to another. It's, it's mutual. He's not speaking of that. Here he's talking about the love of Jesus, love that we're to imitate is this agape love, and agape love is one directional. It's I love you, not because of anything in you, but because of something in me. Something in God's character moves him to love the other despite them. They're not lovely, they're not good, they're not right. Why did God love Israel? Moses says it's not because Israel is more numerous, it's not because Israel was so great, because they were so moral. God loved them. Because he loved them. God set his love and his affection upon them. That's the agape love of God that Jesus demonstrates as he purchases our salvation, but now says we're to love the brothers the same way. Quite a challenge. It's the love. It's the test of love. There was a Southern Baptist pastor, John Powell in Texas, uh, just a couple weeks ago. Maybe you saw this. He was 38. He got four kids. Um, his last sermon at his church, um, he was leaving one church to go plant another church in the Houston area, and he preached from Psalm 72, and he said, he said these words that in his prayer, that in man's, in a poor man's distress, may Christians be there to help. He left that church to go plant this new church, but it was the, a couple weeks ago, he was on the interstate with a friend, he saw a car on the interstate, it hit a truck and the car was on fire. Maybe you read this article. So he pulls over, 
And he and his friend get out to go help this man that's in this car that's on fire. And while he's there, he sees uh, an 18-wheeler coming directly for he and his friend. So what does he do? He instinctively pushes his friend to safety. But he's struck by the semi-truck. And he dies instantly. But he saves both the man in the car and his friend. He laid down his life. He preached it, and then he lived it, sacrificing himself for his friend. It was costly. About a month ago, there was a man in Missouri. He was 25. He was fishing in a river somewhere backwoods in Missouri. And he, while he was fishing, it was a fairly strong current. And he looked out, and he saw a little boy struggling. He was struggling with the current, and he was struggling to, to stay afloat. And so the man wrist to himself, began to swim great distance for the little boy. And he got there, and he was able to get the boy out of the current to safety, but in the process, in his fatigue, he too was swept away in the current. It will be found later as he drowned in that Missouri River, sacrificing his life, laying down his life for someone else. That's radical love. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, that's Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are we willing to lay down our lives? Do we we love in that kind of love? We might think about that in terms of our family, to think about that in terms of one another. That's That's a hard ask, and yet that's what Scripture says. But the love test continues. Sometimes it's easier to envision the big radical love, right? We hear about soldiers in war doing such heroic things, but sometimes when it's smaller and closer to home, it may not be as easy. Look what it says in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is in action. If you have the world's goods, meaning if you have provision, if you have enough, and I think by most standards in this room, we have enough, right? If we have enough and we see a brother in need and we are not moved, there's no compassion, there's no empathy to reach out, we have to ask the question, does the love of God abide in us? Where are we? If we see someone sick, do we, well, maybe not today, don't go to them, but in a normal world, someone's in the hospital, go see them, right? Uh, make them a pot of soup. Uh, someone's struggling financially, can you help? Someone's hurt or disabled, can you cut their grass, right? Can you pray for them? Can you reach out? Can you encourage them? Can you write them? No. We see people in need, and the Christian is called to be moved by love to sacrifice for the good of others, to be generous, to action. Notice the, the, the change uh, from 17 to 16. Verse 16, it says, lay down his life for the brothers. It's plural. Verse 17 says, if he sees his brother, singular. I, I think there's something to that. Um, sometimes when we think about love in gen- general, uh, it, it can... It's faint. 
Yes, we love everyone. Yes, we love the world. Yes, we love people around the world. But when we don't know them, it's hard to be moved with compassion, to be stirred. It's one of the reasons I think uh, the news media is so unhelpful, right? It speaks in these categories. But when you know people, when you see people with needs and trials and difficulties, we're often moved to love. So do we see people? Do we see people's plight? Do we see people's struggle? Do we have space in our world to see, to know? Does God's love abide in us? Do we love? The first test, how do you do? Do you love? The second test is uh, the truth test. Verse 19, by this, this is interesting, you shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, what's this about? This is saying that um, our hearts uh, condemn us. What does that mean? Our hearts can condemn us because of a, a righteous conviction that we feel guilty. We feel righteous conviction for our sin. We've done something wrong. We can be falsely accused of something. We can be feeling condemned by the accuser. We've already talked about the evil one accuses and seeks to condemn. Obviously, you can respond to those in different ways. But either way, when your heart speaks a word of conviction or condemnation, what do we do with that? Do we stay buried in it? Do we stay crushed by it? Or do we live in the truth and the freedom that the gospel brings? What do you do with it? Um, so much of our Christian experience today is generated by our, 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 our Christian life is, is measured by our experience, right? How do we feel about how we're doing? How do we feel about God's love? How do we feel about this or about that? And our feelings are valid and our feelings are important. Our feelings are a big part of our life with God. But they're not the final word. They're not the final word. Um, the verse says this, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. There's something greater than the condemning voice, the, the condemning heart within us, and that is God is greater, and he knows everything. In other words, if you feel condemned, you feel crushed by sin, your heart's speaking to you, the Lord has already spoken a greater word than that, which speaks of forgiveness and grace. He knows your heart. Your heart's not going to generate something the Lord doesn't know. It's not going to come up with something. He knows it. He's greater than our own feelings. Our hearts, the scriptures say, are deceitful. They mislead us. Some of you know the famous example of Martin Luther. He was the, uh, the early reformer. He... Uh, he pledged himself to be in a monastery, to be a monk, um, and yet he had trouble in the monastery. He would pray and confess hour upon hour upon hour. He would lock himself in the confessional, confessing to the priest every single thing he could think of. He was thinking of things, trying to come up with anything to cleanse his conscience because he knew he was convicted, he knew he was guilty. So much so that the other monks were mad at him. He wasn't doing his work. And the priests that were hearing the confessions were tiring. They were falling asleep, saying, Martin, you're forgiven. But he knew he was guilty. But he failed to know there was something greater than his own heart 
and that is the work of Christ, the truth of what God has done to absolve, to forgive, to cover his sin. He needed to apply the gospel to his own heart. I have a similar experience. Maybe you have, I remember being a middle school, maybe some of you middle school kids or high school, and just feeling guilty, right? Like I knew I'd sinned and gone to bed and felt like I had to pray a prayer again or get the words just right or feel bad enough, long enough that I could kind of get over the hump or over the hurdle and I would be forgiven, right? And so it could be legitimate guilt, like I did something wrong. It could have been false guilt in the sense it was a, the, the evil one and accusations. But either way, I needed to apply the gospel that Jesus covers all our sins, past, present, and future. And we're called to live in the freedom of that. The truth, Scripture says, is what sets us free Truth test. Do we use the truth of the gospel and apply it to our own hearts? It's not just theoretical stuff. It's not just something pastors say. It's actually something we apply for our own hearts. Two tests down, two to go. Uh, we got uh, love test, truth test. The third one is convicting the prayer test. Look at this, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. This is an odd, it's an odd Greek uh, trans, transition here. Last verse said, if your heart condemns you. This verse, uh, this verse said, if your heart doesn't condemn you. It kind of goes quickly. Through reading the, commentate, uh, the commentators, basically what's happening is John is assuming that you're taking his advice. John is assuming your heart condemns you and that you apply that God is greater Right? That he knows everything to your own heart. So now your heart stands in this verse uncondemned. Do you see that flow? It's kind of the flow. Condemned, you've applied the truth, and now you stand in the very next verse. If your heart does not condemn you, then we have confidence before God to ask. So the truth test and the prayer test are really uh, two sides of the same coin. When we apply the truth that we are forgiven, that we are justified, that we are righteous, that we are loved, we therefore... Go to God with confidence to pray, to ask, to seek Him. Do you pray? Do you ask? Do you go to Him with confidence? Hebrews 4 speaks of the great high priest who has gone on our behalf, Jesus Christ. It says this, If we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin... So what's the conclusion to that? The truth. Jesus has gone for us. He's gone on our behalf. He can sympathize. Let us then, therefore, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Are you, let me ask you, do, do you go to the Lord in prayer? That's simple. Uh, this is not a legalistic thing. Like we're not, we're not Muslims. We don't have to pray five times. We don't have to pray facing a certain direction. We don't have to pray in a certain posture, kneeling, standing, seated, hands in the air, prostrate. We don't have to. We're not conditioned to that. What's your heart do with your fear? What's your heart do with your worry? What's your heart do? we got a little bit of that going on, right? What's your heart do with your anxiety or your financial trouble or your loneliness or your conflict or your whatever it may be? What does your heart do 
Is it inclined to go with confidence in prayer? Or do we try to work it out? I'm often guilty of I'll just figure it out. I got a problem, I got some stress, I'll just figure it out. The test is the believer, as we grow in Christ, we go to the Lord. We apply the truth and then we go to Him and we share our heart, our concern. Um, further, he says, if we, 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. We can not only have confidence to pray, we can have confidence that He's going to answer us in our prayers. Now, this is always one of those places where we have to qualify it, right, a little bit. Um, our prayers are in accordance with God's word and God's promise. You know, if we say, Lord, I feel confident. Lord, give me that Lamborghini, you know. I really feel like the Lord wants to give me that. Um, there's no promise in Scripture related to sports cars, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, beach houses. There are promises in Scripture related to peace and trial, um, comfort, His presence, His provision, his kindness, his goodness to be with us, his people. And so we can pray with confidence in those things, expecting he will answer. And we can pray for other things. We can pray for healing. We can pray for difficult things. But the issue is not, is everything going to line up just the way we want and work out just what, the way we want it? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is our confidence moves us to go to our Father to ask to petition. Imagine a little child coming to his dad. His dad may not give him everything in the exact way he wants. He, may, he knows better. He is a good father. And yet the child has all the freedom and all the confidence to come jump in his lap and to ask and to make his petition known. This is the test. You go to the Lord in prayer. Quickly, lastly, um, we've got love. Do we love? Do we apply the truth? Do we pray? Final test, the belief. The test of belief, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Um, our assurance of faith is not just external. It's not just we've got to love. It's not just we've got to pray. It's not even that we just got to know some things and then apply it to ourselves. It's actually we, have to, um, we actually have to believe something within. Christianity has content. There's substance to it. We have to make a confession. It says this, we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And it says, and love one another. There's a confession. The first act of obedience is to confess our belief in Jesus. And here it says, in the name of Jesus. In the name means in the person, in the identity. Our confidence is in the character of Jesus and who he is. It's not just generic in this culture today. It's like, just believe. It doesn't matter what you believe, you just believe. That's not what Scripture teaches. It's not what Christianity teaches. There's a particularity to it. It's Jesus. A few weeks ago, we looked at the whole verses about the Antichrist, and there are many Antichrists, and we tried to 
talk through that. It says the Antichrist is he that does what? He denies that Jesus is the Christ. And so our belief, our faith is that we confess that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Christ. That he is our hope. He is our longing. That everything, every, everything we got is in the basket of Jesus. He is our only hope. That's what it means to believe in the name of Jesus. He's not an addendum. He's not an attachment. He's not a works plus Jesus. All our hope is in Him. Our salvation rests in Him. This is so helpful because this verse connects things that often in society we pull apart. It says we are to believe and we're to love. To believe and to love. We can't say, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's all about love, just love. Love is action, right? You hear that all the time, right? Do we hear that? Shirts that say that, bumper stickers, just love, that's all that matters. Scripture says that's not. It's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. That's not adequate enough for Scripture. Scripture says uh, we do love, but we also confess a person. We confess Jesus, the Savior. At the same time, we can't say, just believe, right? We got our theology right, we just believe, and yet we have no compassion, we have no heart, we have no action, we have no movement to others. It doesn't pass the test one, right? It doesn't pass the love test. It's not, um, it's not liberal or conservative, it's not Republican or Democrat, left, right. It's not soup kitchen or preach the gospel, not. It's not these dichotomies we pull ourselves. It's a third way. It's the way of Jesus. It's going to be more loving than any liberal could be. It's going to be more conservative in truth than any conservative can be. It's the way of Jesus. He is the embodiment of what? Grace and truth. These tests are hard. <laughs> Jesus calls us to the third way, to the high road. To love deeply. And in doing that, to hold these together, we can say we have a full picture, a better picture of what the gospel is. What the followers of Jesus are called to do. To have humility and to have confidence. To believe unashamedly that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That's it. That's all my hope. Yet to believe it with such love and generosity to others. With such forgiveness and kindness to each other. It's imperative. It's a new path. It's a new way. And frankly, we all fail at it. <laughs> we fail at it. Uh, these tests are good. Take them home. I'll send you some questions tomorrow for, devo for devotion. Examine yourself. Use this to evaluate. But you're not a Christian because you do any of these things. You're not a Christian because of your prayer life. You're not a Christian even because how well you apply the truth. You're not a Christian because of how well you love or fail to love. Our salvation is founded on verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus is, uh, he is, you know, um, he is the example but he's more than that. He's our substitute. 
He's the one that's done these things. There's no one that's loved better. There's, there's, there's no one that's been tr- it's truthful. He is the truth. Uh, there, there's no one that's prayed like he prayed. Even in the darkest hour to the Father, he prays. He is the truth and the life. Our hope and confidence as we grow in Christ is that we would look to Jesus and that we would find our ability to examine ourselves and be honest with ourselves is found in the confidence of what Jesus has done for us. He laid down his life for us that we may lay down our life for others. Let's pray.